Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open to the book of Philippians. Uh, for those of you who are newer to the Bible, that's in the second part of the Bible, the Newer Testament. Uh, don't be ashamed to open up the table of contents and look. I'd really love for you to have your Bibles or your cell phones open. We want you to know if you're new to faith, we're so glad that you're here with so many that have been a part of this faith journey for many years. We're, we're a church that's on a journey together, and so we're glad wherever you find yourself that you're here today. I want to introduce to you uh, someone who is new to this church, uh, Brent Hall. If you'd wave your hand, this is Brent right here on the second row. Brent is a preaching intern for us here at Greenville Oaks for the next few weeks. Uh, Brent is actually going to bring our message uh, this next Sunday, and uh, he is going to be a senior at Harding University and is uh, considering preaching ministry. And I want you to know, uh, there are not too many who are considering preaching uh, out of our schools. And we need to do everything we can to support those who would consider such a thing. And that is in no way to belittle the work that all of us do in God's kingdom. But we also need to be aware that sometimes God does call people for a task. And we want to be a church that supports those uh, who feel that calling. And so I I know next week you'll do a great job of encouraging uh, Brent, but I'm glad to have him here over the next few weeks. Let's pray together as we open God's word. Oh, Father, how great you are. How worthy you are. Oh, how you've changed our lives, God. And oh, how we desire more change. This morning, God, I I pray that these words written almost 2,000 years ago would be as alive as they've ever been. May your spirit breathe life into these words so that they are not lifeless words on a page, God, but they are your words to each heart in just the way that's needed. This morning, God, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts and in our lives. And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Have you ever received one of those letters before? It's about 10 pages long. And it could have been reduced to three sentences. You know the letter I'm referring to? Maybe it's a letter you've sent or maybe it's a letter you've received. But it's a bit of hard news that you had to deliver. And in order to deliver that, you had to provide, as someone said in first service to me, you call that landscape. (laughs) You just had to lead up to the hard news because it's hard to just present those three words or those three sentences. Or maybe it was a bit of good news. That you received a letter and it was the best news you could have received. And in order to give the good news weight, it had to come in a large context. Well, some of you, as we've been through this series, may be wondering a little bit about Philippians. Why is it as long as it is? Because it seems like the things Paul wants to say, he could say so much more briefly. And in some sense, that's probably true. I think Paul's trying to address some specific concerns And some of you, just like getting an acceptance or rejection letter from a college, you know this waiting game, don't you? You just wish they would stamp accepted or rejected at the top of the letter. Because why do I have to get through all that to get another rejection or another acceptance, whatever your situation might be? But I think this letter is important. It's not the longest of Paul's letters that he wrote, but it is packed with content. And so while uh, chapter 4 that we're going to focus on today, I think is a key reason why Paul wrote to this church, the setup is just as important as what he's trying to deliver in news. Now imagine with me for a moment that you're in the first century and you're a Christian in Philippi. 
and you receive word that a letter has been written from a guy named Paul. Paul is the father of this church. He's the one who founded it. And he founded it one day by a river as he saw some women and he went there where they went to pray and and, and there Lydia came to faith and there Lydia's whole household was baptized soon after. You've heard stories about that scene in that day. You've also heard stories about Paul and his friends being put in prison because he cast uh, some spirits out of a girl that didn't need to be there and the owners of that girl weren't pleased when her gift of telling the future was gone. You also heard stories about that time when they were in jail. And, and God broke them out of the jail and the jailer was concerned that maybe he ought to end his life because it was going to be taken from him if he didn't. And Paul and his friends said, no, we're all accounted for. These are the stories you've heard about this guy named Paul. And when this letter is written and this letter is sent to this church, I want you to imagine what it would have been like to have come together to hear this letter read in your presence. Guessing there were some questions about what is it that Paul's going to address. I'm wondering if there were some that knew about a conflict in that church between two sisters, Euodia and Syntyche. If you're looking for baby names, you can add those two to your list. Epaphroditus is another one that's in the book that's a good one. Maybe Clement is a better name. But, but, but Euodia and Syntyche are these two women, co-workers with Paul. Perhaps they were there that day with Lydia. We don't know the whole story. These are the only time their names are mentioned in Scripture. And when you come together to hear this letter read, I'm guessing there are some that are wondering, is Paul going to bring up the spat between these two? Wondering how this emerges. Uh, you've probably been a part of a church where there's been a problem or two between people. Has this happened in a church you've been a part of? Intentions are there. And maybe uh, one sister goes to the first service and another sister goes to the second. Or maybe they sit on opposite sides. I don't want to be too specific because I know that there may be some in the room this morning that need a letter like this. Paul writes this word to a church that's in the midst of conflict with two co-workers with Paul that are struggling with something. We're not sure quite what. And so when he comes to his uh, to, to his letter, and he writes this letter, they hear it read, and I imagine them coming together with this tension in the room. And I imagine there may be a cluster of people who are supporters of Euodia, and I have to wonder if there were supporters of Syntyche on the other side. And as these words are read, Paul says, I, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. And these groups are overhearing this. And he says, grace and peace, the standard greeting. And he tells them, I've been praying for you. I love you all. This is a church that Paul loved. He thanks them for their generosity. And I'm sure as this letter is being read, there's this tension wondering, is he going to address the elephant in the room? Because Epaphroditus had been there to see Paul in prison. And Epaphroditus would have known about Euodia and Syntyche most likely. And so I'm guessing as this letter is being read that they're listening in, wondering, is Paul going to actually get to what we're dealing with? So we come to Philippians, if you have your Bibles, this would be the time to go there. Philippians 4, verse 2, and I want to read what Paul writes after all that he's said. The reason for his letter. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. 
Now, there are several reasons that Paul writes to this church at Philippi, but I think one of the main reasons he writes is because he's heard about some kind of conflict that's going on between these two important leaders in the church, Euodia and Syntyche. We don't know much about these characters. Again, their name doesn't come up anywhere else in Scripture. But if Paul is willing to address this specific issue as clearly and openly as he does in this public letter, you have to think that this is probably causing quite a bit of conflict amongst the rest of the church. But aren't you glad that we live in the 21st century where we don't deal with stuff like this? It's as if we can read this as a 2,000-year-old case study and then we can move on, right? This is what we come to church to do. But it's passages like this that remind me that Scripture has not been evolved past. This is not some text that just kind of has no life and we can say, well, that was about a previous time. No, this is relevant today. Because how many of us can raise our hands this morning and say, I know I've been a part of a church where people left the church because of a relational struggle between people that I loved. How many of you? I think most of us can raise our hand. So this is a very relevant matter. And I, I, I'm just thinking through the, the, the situations in my past where conflict arises. And usually it happens like this. There's a conflict that happens from some incident or perceived incident. And then as that gets out, others begin to wonder. I wonder what happened between Sally and, and, and June. I wonder what happened over the years that caused this. There must have been some incident. And then Sally and June begin to tell their story to others leaving out certain details and telling the details they want to share. And so then gossip begins to emerge, and then groups begin to form, and then a full-blown crisis is on our hands. And then people get upset and leave, usually citing doctrinal differences when it really started with a bit of misinformation, an event that no one was there to begin with at. And all of this begs the question, Can you imagine what the problem might be between Euodia and Syntyche? And as I read the letter, there's several things that emerge for me that might be the issue. One of those might be this. Perhaps it's an issue because Euodia's dad might have been a military commander. You see, Philippi was a colony of Rome where many former military leaders from the Roman Empire retired to. Land was given to them, and, and so citizenship is a key thing in the city. And perhaps Euodia's father was a key commander, but Syntyche came from perhaps a Jewish family. And if Syntyche's parents were the ones who had the boot of the neck of the empire on on them, then you can be assured there's going to be some tension when, well, the patriotic celebrations come around and Rome's flag is waved and and Euodia is not as excited about that, or Syntyche's not near as excited as Euodia is about that. Paul mentions citizenship throughout this book. He says, you're citizens of heaven. You're not citizens of Rome. That's not what you're to be about. Remember where your citizenship lies. So perhaps this is the issue with Euodia and Syntyche. But this week I kept thinking and I thought maybe there are other issues. Maybe it wasn't that at all. Maybe it wasn't family background. Perhaps it was a problem that emerged because of theological differences. Because in in Philippians 3, Paul starts out and he talks about those dogs, right? The, The ones mutilators of the flesh, that circumcision group. The Jews that grew up with important rituals that they wanted to carry on that continue to be a problem in many of the letters that Paul writes. Maybe it is that Syntyche grew up and she was a supporter of the Jewish rituals. In Euodia, she was a Gentile. She didn't have that background. It seems like she just kind of throws those whole traditions out. Why is that important? 
But to Syntyche, it was vital because it was a part of her story from the past. Perhaps that had caused the rift in their relationships. Perhaps it was a a personal conflict. Perhaps Syntyche's kids had had some kind of spat with Euodia's kids. And you know how that works. When mom hears the details, uh, you can tell there's going to be a battle. Mom's going to defend. Perhaps that's what happened. Maybe it was just a family dispute that turned into something. Maybe, maybe it was that, or as I got to thinking more, maybe it was more than that. Maybe it was a socioeconomic issue. Maybe Euodia grew up in a family that was wealthy, and, 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 and she hadn't fallen into her inheritance, but her father finally passed away, and now she's got funds to be able to support herself. And, and those vacations that her and Syntyche used to take, well, now they can't take them together anymore because money has caused the rift in this relationship. Or maybe it's, maybe it's a sin issue. Maybe Syntyche's husband had slept with Euodia. I mean, as you begin to think about these things, it's not hard to come up with what might be the conflict because we've dealt enough in church to know this arises in our place of worship as well. And we see these spats and we see these problems. And so I, I, I thought about this all week. What would the issue have been? <laughs> And then what I realized was the very thing that I just did, just trying to dream up what might be the conflict, is almost the problem in every church where these kind of conflicts arise. We conjecture about what might have happened. The gossip gets out and the conversation goes around. And Well, I've been guilty of the very thing that causes the problem to make it so much worse. We have no idea what the conflict was. But this is how conflict arises. A problem occurs, others notice, they dream up a story, they hear sides, they take sides, and then someone leaves and is upset about it. But Paul comes back and he says, you're to respond in a different way, and I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. So at the beginning of the sermon, I uh, I asked a question I'd like to come back to. I said, have you ever received a letter, maybe an email, where it could have been handled in three sentences, but it ended up being ten pages long? And I wonder if there's some that are re- hearing Paul's letters read and, and they're wondering, would you just get to the matter, Paul? I mean, the tension's there. Why don't you just deal with the issue? But he spends three chapters dealing with all kinds of other things. But as I begin to read this book and understand what's going on, I begin to realize that all of that lead up to chapter 4, verse 2 and 3 with Euodia and Syntyche, it all ties in to what he's trying to say to them. You see, uh, this is Paul's normal way of addressing matters in letters. In the book of Ephesians, he doesn't give one command in the first three chapters. No exhortation. He tells the story of the gospel. And in the final three chapters, he says, because you've committed to the story, this is then how you should live as a result of this. And if you read his letters, Paul tends to do this in every one. He tells the story of the gospel. He reminds them of what they've committed their lives to. And then he says, okay, because you've committed your lives to this, this then is what you should do in response, whatever the conflict might be. And it's no different in Philippians. He's reminding them of their story. He's reminding them of who they are and what they've committed to. And then he comes to chapter 4 and he tries to work that out in their presence. Last week, Stephen Johnson shared with you a great message about the church's song. That we're to sing the song, the the Christ hymn, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, that Christ, the same mindset that he had, should be our mindset as well. It's the center of this book. It's what Paul's trying to remind the people of. And I think what he's trying to say is, Euodian Syntyche, I haven't said your names yet, but listen up. 
have the same mindset that Christ Jesus had, who considered equality with God, not something to be used to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, and God lifted him up, but, but his role was to humble himself. This is the God of the universe who steps into human flesh and humbles himself. So exhibit one to Euodia and Syntyche before he ever addresses them is the life of Jesus Christ. But it's not just that. He continues with other exhibits. Exhibit two, Philippians 2, verse 19. Let me read on. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Paul is saying to them, Pay attention to Timothy. Most of us are just concerned with our own interests, not with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but that's not Timothy. And when I send him to you, he's not just to proclaim a message, his own life is a message to you. You owe the incentive, pay attention. Exhibit three. As we drop down, we continue reading in, in verse 25, chapter two, verse 25. Paul writes, but I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him, Why? Because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. They know Epaphroditus. They sent him to Paul. Epaphroditus almost died. Paul's trying to say to Euodia and Syntyche, I'm sending back Epaphroditus. He's not just going to give you a message. He is the message. He's willing to give up his life. He has the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus. He was willing to give up his life and God saved it. A little bit later, chapter 3, verse 17 is exhibit 4. Paul writes, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says this in so many of his letters. And it's an astounding claim that I hope more and more of us can come to proclaim. Follow me as I follow Christ. Well, isn't that a daunting thing to say to anyone? So much easier to say, don't do as I do, do as I say. But Paul doesn't say that. And so Paul is trying to hint at this to Euodian Syntyche all through the book. It's not just fluff to work through until he finally gets to his issue. He's trying to say to to, to Euodian Syntyche, pay attention to Jesus. Have the same mindset Jesus did. And I'm going to send you Timothy. Have the same mindset as him. Don't think about your own interests. Look about the, the, the cross of Christ being most important. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then he points to Epaphroditus. He was willing to die for your sake. Why don't you 
live like he does. And then he gives himself as an example. Follow me as I follow Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is our pattern. Our pattern is not a way of reading scripture. Our pattern is a person. It's Jesus Christ. And so how he lived is how we're called to live. And that is a hard word, is it not? To follow the the pattern of the Christ hymn, to say, God, I I give up my life for your sake. Whatever you would have me do, God, I'll live into that. I'll give up everything. And that's a hard word. It's easy in principle to say, Euodia and Syntyche, can't you all get along? Boy, have you ever had a real problem with someone and try to live that out? Boy, it's so hard, isn't it? I'm just guessing this morning as we come into this room, some of you are having a really hard time with someone in your life. Maybe it's someone in your family system. Maybe you've been through a divorce and you're trying to work out the kid's situation and trying to work with that ex-spouse is one of the hardest things you've tried to figure out. Maybe it's someone across the room or in another service in this church right now and you're trying to figure out, can I stay here? Because I don't know that I can stay in the same room as this person. I don't know what it might be for you, but my guess is in uh, our lives, we all have someone we could fill in the blank with and say, yeah, it's easy in principle to forgive, but when it comes down to that person, uh, you don't know the details. I got to confess something this morning. I was on vacation this last week with my family, went with my extended family and I wrote this message before I went on vacation. Don't get ahead of me, come on. And I come back and I'm with Brent in my office kind of going over the message for Sunday and I start reading what I wrote and what I realized was that sermon wasn't for you all, it was for me. Because there was some stuff that happened on vacation that was a little difficult family-wise. And as I read over the sermon again, what I realized was, I'm not sure I can preach this word. I'm not sure I can tell others to do something that I need to do. But isn't this the call of the gospel for all of us, is to somehow say, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm trying to live this out. This week, I'm going to have to have some conversations because of the sermon I'm preaching this morning. I'm preaching to me first this morning. And I say that from a confessional standpoint, not just to say, hey, look at me, me I'm messed up. I'm, I'm saying it to say, I think it's so easy in principle to write a sermon and say, man, these people are going to, oh man, I hope they hear this, right? And then you come back and read it and realize, oh my goodness. How in the world do you work that out when it's a matter so close to home? And The tagline at the top of my message, you can read it, the aha, if I could just say that, is whatever happens, have the same mind as that of Christ Jesus. Whatever happens, have the same mind as that of Christ Jesus. And and I know if I was to have some one-on-one conversations today, you'd want to say, but Colin, you don't know the details of this. And, And that was the struggle I had this week, is can I honestly say to everyone, no matter the situation they're in, Whatever happens, it doesn't matter the details. Whatever happens, whatever happens, our call is to have the same mind as that of Christ Jesus. Paul uses the same verb twice in verse 2. He doesn't say, I plead with Euodia and Syntyche. He doesn't say, I plead with Euodia and Syntyche, I know you're right, so she needs to get over it. You, you know, get over it. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche. 
You have the same mind as that of one another. Pull that verse up, if you will, uh, chapter 4, verse 2. I plead with Euodia, I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now that phrase, the same mind, uh, shows up throughout the letter, actually. It's an important phrase that Paul uses. I want to go back and show you some of these. Philippians 2, verse 2. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded. And that phrase, like-minded, is the same verb. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. A few verses later, verse 5. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 15. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. And then finally in 4.2, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind. Now Paul is not encouraging uniformity of thought. He's not saying, hey, if we could finally get on the same page and agree on all the same things, then finally we'll have unity with one another. I think that's impossible. Uh, Randy Harris says it this way. The only thing that's holding a lot of churches together is a lack of communication. Like, if, if you knew what so-and-so knew over here and thought about something, you would wonder how in the world you could be brothers and sisters. The only reason that's not the case is we don't know what each other believe because sometimes we're not in relationship enough. But if we were to dig down deep, come to know what each other believes, we would struggle with unity more than we currently do. What I'm wondering is, what does it look like to be of the same mind as that of Christ Jesus? What does it look like? Because I'm wondering, there are people who drive down on Sunday mornings down the street, Greenville Avenue, and they drive by a few churches. And I'm just wondering, do they wonder why there are all these buildings on the street? I don't think they're driving by going, I wonder which one's right. I think they're wondering, why are these people who claim the same Lord not uniting with one another? Have the same mind as that of Christ Jesus. Uh, Jesus prayed about something like this in John chapter 17. I want to read this to you because this is not written just to the disciples. It's written to us. John 17, verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Let me say that again. So that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. I got to tell you, God is pulling on my heart over the last couple of years to be a person who cares more deeply about the people around me I don't know who don't know Jesus. I've been so content through my life to just go to church and do my rituals and to move on, but I, God is breaking my heart for people in our community who don't know Jesus. And I hope more and more this is the heart of this congregation is we would be broken for those things that God's heart breaks for. And as I think about how do we reach people, I I wonder what does evangelism look like in the 21st century? What what does it look like to be good news, to share the good news? And and I think it's going to take a bold message. I think it's going to mean we speak the name of Jesus, not just do acts in his name. It's going to take some boldness from us. Some of that's going to be received and some of it's going to be rejected. But I'm wondering if maybe an even better way in the 21st century to be evangelistic is going to start by inviting people around our tables and into our homes and showing hospitality. 
of being the, the house on our street that people know that's a place you can go. That table's open to anyone. It's crazy. <laughs> that's kind of what communion is, isn't it? It's a reminder that anyone's welcome here. <laughs> Any crazy person can walk in here and take bread and juice with us and be reminded of who Jesus is. It, it's an insane idea that, that the church has. But, but I'm beginning to think as I read John 17 that evangelism is not just about speaking a bold message. It's not just about hospitality. What Jesus says is, when you're one, the world looks at it and wonders, how in the world can that group of people be one? It's actually the greatest evangelism that might be in the, the modern world would be for a, a church full of, of people in different buildings with different names on those buildings to actually say, hey, we believe in Jesus and we might meet different places Sunday morning. But those are my brothers and sisters. We have the same mind because they support Jesus just as much as we do. It might just be the craziest thing the world might look at and say, if they can agree, maybe we need to check this Jesus thing out. That's what Jesus is praying for. It's his heart's desire. Philippians isn't just a letter about joy. It's not just a letter about a thank you for The generosity that they've given. Philippians is written to a church that's dealing with a struggle between two sisters and it's causing an uproar. And in verse 3, it's really important for us to read. This is not just about Euodian Syntyche. This is about the rest of us. Okay, church? Let's read verse 3. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. This is not just written to Euodia and Syntyche. Keep that verse up there if you will. It's written to my true companion. I'm not sure who that is. I, it could be somebody he's sending along, but it could be the whole church that he's talking to. He's saying, this is not just Euodia and Syntyche's issue. If you're in partnership in the gospel, these are my co-workers. These are people who led beside me. They've contended at my side for the gospel, which is military language, as if to say they, they've been a part of this struggle, like the gladiatorial fights that happened in Rome. That's what they've done. And they used to fight with me, and now they're fighting against each other. And it's your job as the people in this community to help them work this out. I've been a part of too many churches where a spat that happens turns into conversation, that turns into gossip, that turns into this, and and then we call it something else for the reason we can't come together and unite for the cause of the gospel. We need people who are not just peacekeepers, but peacemakers. And that doesn't mean you enter into every conflict and cause more conflict. It means where you have relationship with Euodia and Syntyche in this church, what does it look like for us to pray for them? What does it look like to walk in beside them? It probably looks something like Matthew 18, and you can look at that later in the week, but it, it, it means that we are caught up in this struggle, not just the two of the women who are there. Perhaps Paul's not just speaking to Euodia and Syntyche today. Perhaps he's talking to some of you. And perhaps there are some true companions that need to emerge. I can tell you this morning, the elders would love nothing more if there's a conflict that can't be resolved between you for you to come this morning and to take first steps to work that out. If if right now your marriage is headed to a place that seems like this is an irreconcilable difference, our elders... Many people in this church would love nothing more than to walk beside you and figure out what it looks like to have the same mind. If you're having a family issue that's out there, maybe it's not connected to the church, 
We would love to help. We'd love to walk in beside you to contend with you as coworkers. But we can't continue to have these spats and these conflicts and let gossip to go on. We need to be contenders beside God on behalf of others. I know this is hard in a church this size to figure out what that looks like. It's why it's important for us to be a part of connecting point groups. It's why it's important for us to be in one another's homes, to, to open our tables to one another. But I'm just imagining a church that gains a hold of this vision and says, you know what? I'm not going to look to my own interests. I'm going to drop the pride that so easily is part of these things. And I'm not going to take the list with me when I go this week to have that conversation. I'm actually going to humble myself and I'm going to say, here's what I have to own. And we still need to work this out. I don't know what that looks like and I don't know what trust means. It's not that forgiveness changes everything in the instant. But, but we're going to seek to have the same mind as that of Christ Jesus. Amen? I want to pray this morning, and I want to pray specifically that God, if you're in one of those situations, that he would, he would bother you this week with that conflict. That he wouldn't let you let go of that name or that face in your mind, and that we would find a way to try to figure that out. Let's pray together as we close. God, I thank you so much that the way the world goes towards dysfunction and chaos, that you're a God who brings order. You're a God who, who reconciles all things. And you've given us a ministry of reconciliation. You've called us to be peacemakers. God, we want to be your children. And we want the world to look at us and say, what in the world are those people doing together? We want to be odd in our unity. We want to have the same mind. We... We want this, and yet it is so difficult. It's difficult for me this week as I figure out what my next steps are. So God, would you convict hearts as you need to? Would you allow first steps to be first steps that are taken towards restoration and wholeness? Would you allow marriages that have allowed themselves to be separate and and to be in different parts of the house, would you begin steps this week to to help those relationships reemerge? We pray for your Spirit's help. We pray for boldness and courage. We pray for patience and long-suffering. We pray for the fruits of the Spirit to be at work in our lives. God, this morning I, I, I speak boldly, but I speak carefully into these situations because I know that these are hard things with details I can't imagine. But God, I know you know those stories, and I know that you say whatever happens have the same mind as that of Christ Jesus. God, would you do this work in us this week? We want to step and take action where we need to. We pray this in all thanks. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Be standing now as we close.